to the Voice of HK podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Julie Bajik-Smith, and in over a decade, I have supported hundreds of older adults to improve their well-being in late life. This podcast offers an authentic insight into aged care, practical tips, and all the inspiration to keep you going. I truly believe that every older person needs to feel heard, loved, and understood. And it is my mission to halve the depression rates in Australian aged care facilities by 2022. everyone. I'm very excited to speak to an experienced clinical nurse consultant, Kelly Arthurs. She's a registered nurse and she's specialized in palliative care. And I know this is a very important topic and something that is often not discussed as openly in aged care because people don't know how to ask the right questions or what to say or do. So I thought it'd be the best if I spoke to an expert in this area. Welcome, Kelly. Thanks so much, Julie. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and what inspired you to specialise in palliative care? Sure, no problem. So basically, I went straight to university out of school. And, you know, I guess like a lot of 18-year-olds, I wasn't entirely sure that my choice of career was correct. So I was sort of advised to go and work in a nursing home during the weekends while I was at university during the week. And I did, and I absolutely loved it. I was a care worker working the morning shift on a Saturday and Sunday throughout my time at uni. But then in my final year at uni, I decided to go and get work in an acute public hospital as an assistant in nursing. So I was pretty much on the casual pool working wherever I was needed. And so usually where I was needed was in an emergency department, caring for people at the end of their lives that had been brought in from a residential aged care home. So this is kind of the first thing that inspired me to um, work in the area that I'm working in now. I went on to finish university and I did a postgraduate year at Westmead Hospital in Immunology and Infectious Diseases, and that was during the 90s. So what I was doing mostly during that time is caring for people with end-stage HIV and AIDS. I went on to travel for a bit, and when I returned, I worked in another acute hospital. I was on a medical ward and I remember really clearly, like yesterday, working one night shift and there was three elderly people that were brought in from residential aged care that were end stage, that were transferred to the ward I was in charge of, that arrested overnight and they didn't have an advanced care plan or advanced care directive in place. So, you know, the default is to resuscitate. So we unsuccessfully resuscitated three people that night. And that was almost the end of my nursing career. So since then, I questioned what what I was doing. I went and worked in a residential aged care home as a registered nurse, and I was still quite young and fresh and wasn't really confident, didn't have the experience or the education to provide quality end-of-life care. And I did question the care that I was providing and wondering if I was doing a good enough job. And I was ready to, you know, finish up with nursing, and I was looking at becoming a florist, but I don't like early mornings. I was looking at going back and doing teaching at university. But then a friend of mine was working in a palliative care unit and she strongly suggested that I go and have a look and maybe, you know, just try palliative care and see if I liked it. And that was 17 years ago. 
since then, you know, I found my passion. I absolutely love working in palliative care. I love everyone that I work with and what, what we do. And yeah, 17 years ago. So since then, I've worked in palliative care, providing quality end of life care to people in their own homes, dying at home, uh, dying in residential aged care, in public and private hospitals throughout Northern Sydney, palliative care units. I've also been involved in paediatric palliative care. So I've sort of got a really vast experience in palliative care now, which and, and the thing that I'm most passionate about is a lot of health professionals haven't had that experience that I've had and haven't worked with the clinicians that I've worked with. And I basically want to share what I know with all the clinicians that I work with and that they don't have that experience. That's in a nutshell. <laughs> wow, wow. So imagine if you were florist, you wouldn't be where you are now. <laughs> That's correct. And I, w- I would be um, blurry-eyed and, and sleepy all the time because I'm a morning person. So Kelly, can you tell our listeners, like, what is palliative care? Does it apply to everyone? Like, do we all are we all going to get palliative care? And how is it relevant to residential care? Yeah. So palliative care is so misunderstood. There's so many myths and misconceptions around palliative care and there's so much fear because people see palliative care as end-of-life care or dying. But I'd like to explain that the focus should be on living well until somebody dies. And palliative care is an approach to care. It's an approach to care when someone's been diagnosed with a life-limiting illness. So they've been diagnosed with an illness that can't be cured and it is going to, you know, result in the end of their lives. But they need support around that. And that support might be physical support. They might have symptoms such as pain, breathing problems, anxiety, constipation. There's a whole list of physical problems. And if palliative care was just looking at physical problems, all you would need is a doctor and a nurse in the palliative team. But the palliative care team, it's a huge team that's, you know, got occupational therapists, physiotherapists, social workers, bereavement coordinators volunteer, pastoral care. It's a holistic approach to care and that's what really attracted me to working in palliative care. It's a holistic person-centred approach to care and we're not just looking at physical symptoms but we're looking at spiritual, psychosocial and social. And someone might have issues with all of those four domains or they might have issues with one thing and that's when palliative care can help. And it can be provided in, in different settings. Palliative care team looks different. In residential age care, the palliative care team looks like the care worker in the facility, the GP visiting, the RNs, the care manager, the recreational officer, the, you know, uh, volunteer that's visiting. And then if needed, a specialist palliative care team. So palliative care is an approach to care, but not everybody needs specialist public care input. But if they have any issues, those four things, by all means, palliative care is available if required. And I just, one that I explain to families, because a lot of people say, oh, no, they're not ready for palliative care yet, they're not dying yet, and people avoid it and don't realise that people that are moved to palliative care actually research shows evidence that people live longer if they're referred to palliative care because it's perfect sense. And, and in palliative care, there's actually five phases there and most people don't realise that. When you refer to palliative care or when you're having a palliative approach to care, you can be stable, which means you don't have any issues. You're doing okay, but you're expected to deteriorate and die in the next, say, 12 months or sometimes years, depending on what your illness is. So you're stable, no problems. 
unstable. You've got some issues that we need to deal with and they could be, as I said before, physical, psychosocial, social, you know, spiritual concerns. So unstable, we need to address those issues. So they're unstable. When we address those issues, someone might go back to being stable again, which is good, you know, that's great. But they might be unstable because they're starting to deteriorate. And deterioration is that next phase of palliative care when someone's in the maybe the last weeks to months of life and they're needing a bit more support. And then there's the next phase is terminal care. So terminal care is last days of life. And this is where people get so confused. They think palliative care is terminal care and it's only one aspect of palliative care. Wow, I've learned so much from you already. There's so much to it. I'll just explain the last phase because there is five phases of palliative care. The last phase is really important, really important because it's the bereavement phase and this is where we need to support families. So there's five phases of palliative care. So what you're saying is that then because the team is so wide, it implies that those who work in aged care also need to have some skills and training around palliative care. Of course. Yeah, of course I do. That's my passion at the moment because, you know, I'm attracted to work with vulnerable populations and I know that, you know, obviously frail aged people living in residential aged care are quite vulnerable. And as I said before, with my background, I really understand how it feels to be a care worker. I understand how it feels to be a registered nurse with not a lot of confidence and experience and education around end-of-life care. And, yeah, this is an area that has been highlighted as an area in need and and it's an area that has got a lot of focus now, which is really exciting for me because previously it hasn't. No, I completely agree and, and understand. And when I was at university doing my degree in psychology, I also worked as a home care worker. And, you know, nowadays when I run training, a lot of people say, oh, you don't know what it's like to be a carer. It's like, no, just like you. I know what it's like to be a carer and I know the the limitations and restrictions that you'd have. And I just think there's just, it's amazing now where we are now as opposed to where we were when you and I went to uni, just in terms of like all this information that's available out there for for the workforce. It's it's great. So can you tell me a little bit about Hammond Care's Centre for Learning and Research in Palliative Care and why our listeners need to know about it? Oh, sure. So I work for Hammond Care. I have done for 13 years now. And I've sort of got two two roles at Hammond Care. One of them is the clinician mentor on the advanced project, which is a national project funded by the Australian government. And that is aimed at helping people working in general practice, so nurses, GPs and practice managers to initiate advanced care planning and palliative care into everyday general practice. So that's one of the research projects that the Hammond Care Centre for Learning and Research for Palliative Care oversees. So the centre is led by Professor Josephine Clayton, also involves Professor Melanie Lovell. And along with the advanced project, we're looking at lots of other areas and there's lots of exciting things happening in regards to research and projects in this area, such as improving end-of-life care for people living with dementia cancer pain, grief and bereavement, anxiety and depression, and refractory breathlessness. So there's a lot of research, fantastic research going on, not just in the Hammond Care's Palliative Care Learning and Research Centre, but also Hammond Care's Dementia Centre as well. 
And if you would like to know any further information about, about the work being done, you can look at the Hammond Care website. Okay, great, great. So, look, I'll share the website at the end so that people can have information about it. And how would they connect with their local palliative care units? So, if, you know, if they work in aged care. Okay, yep. So, there's something called PEPA, P-E-P-A, which stands for a program of experience in the palliative approach. Now, when I was talking before about the Advanced Project being one of the national palliative care projects, there is quite a few of them. There's, I think there's 17 projects happening nationally now. If an aged care worker wants to get more experience in palliative care, definitely there's online education available. There's We hold monthly online webinars that I can share that information with you, Julie, to share with others. But also, I highly recommend that they Google PEPA, P-E-P-A, Program of Experience in the Palliative Approach, and apply for a PEPA placement. A PEPA placement is an observational placement where someone in aged care that wants more experience and more knowledge around palliative care can go and spend time with the palliative care team, whether that's in the community, in an inpatient setting, or even in an acute hospital, buddy up with the palliative care team and just observe what's going on. And it's all funded by the government. Your workplace is compensated. Nobody's out of pocket. And what the idea is, is you go and learn by observing what happens in the palliative care unit and you take those skills and those learnings with you back to your workplace. Oh, wow, that's so good. And just because you also mentioned like if there's any information for families, just in case some people that listen to this are relatives or families, where do you think is the best place for them to get more information? So there is an excellent website called the Palliative Care Bridge. So I suggest that families look at that website. But when I speak to families, a couple of things that I suggest that they go away and look at is, you know, everyone's so savvy with um, technology nowadays and, and looking up websites and things, but there's a fantastic TED Talk by Dr. Peter Soule, who's an ICU doctor in um, the Hunter, New England region. He's got a fantastic TED Talk. So if you Google Dr. Peter Soule, it's A-U-L, Advanced Care Planning Australia has got some great videos. There's one called Love is Not Enough, and that's fantastic to watch, a five-minute clip. And there's also another YouTube clip by Dr. Catherine Mannix, Catherine with a K, and it's called In My Humble Opinion. So those are the three things. If people want to know more in this area, that's a really great start. Fantastic. Wow. <laughs> you. You're very well resourced. That's really good because sometimes, you know, I get asked questions as well. So it's, it's good to know where to direct people and what's the right information. And Kelly, I guess in a more practical sense, like if we talk about people, if we talk about cases, you know, recently I was in an aged care facility where a lady was dying in palliative care. And I remember just everyone around her getting a bit frustrated that she was taking a while to die, you know, and they were just, the family said to me, look, you know, we, we said it's okay for her to pass away and, you know, they put her in a chapel in this particular facility and she was just hanging on for days and days and residents were saying, oh, you know, she still hasn't passed away. And I guess, you know, there's this misconception that with palliative care that we can fast track death and that we can, you know, minimise the perceived suffering that the person has, even though this person looks very calm and, yeah, she looked very peaceful. And she passed away a couple of days after I was on site. 
But I just want to know from you, and I know that you're in a senior role, but, you know, over the years, have you had any good death stories that you'd like to share with our listeners? Lots, lots and lots. And, you know, what you've just explained, I do come across often. And, you know, the reason behind that is because people don't know what death and dying looks like anymore. Our culture, we're a death-defying culture. We don't, we don't talk about it. Um, we don't know what death and dying actually looks like. So I know when I spend time with families, I explain what it looks like. I explain what they can anticipate to see as somebody's condition changes as they deteriorate. If families are equipped with the knowledge and staff are equipped with the knowledge of what's normal and we know that everybody dies as they live and everybody does things differently, sometimes it might be that somebody is holding on for somebody to visit, to say goodbye, but the majority of the time if somebody has, you know, completed their lives and palliative care has addressed a lot of their needs, as I said, the spiritual and psychosocial needs as well, Death, you know, when I say the terminal phase, we know that that goes on for hours to days. That's the time frame. And if people know it goes for hours to days, you know, sometimes a little bit longer, sometimes a little bit shorter. But if people know that, they can understand that. And staff need to be able to guide families because a lot of times families haven't actually seen what death and dying looks like. They need to guide families on what to do during that time and make it a beautiful time with families. This episode is proudly brought to you by the Enhancing Emotional Wellbeing in Late Life Workshop. This essential training is for anyone supporting older adults seeking practical strategies to reduce isolation and loneliness and help older adults make new and exciting as well as fulfilling moments. Find out more today from wisecare.com.au. When I say a good death and a beautiful time with families in residential aged care, and I know with COVID now this can't really happen, but what I've seen is family all around, family know what's happening, family understanding whatever symptoms might crop up, anxiety, agitation, you know, changes in breathing. Families anticipate that and they understand what that all means and what's happening. And then they understand that the senses of touch, and hearing are the last to go, so they've taught them to do gentle hand massages or provide mouth care or play lovely music or talk to that person or play hymns or have that. Those moments are absolutely precious and beautiful as opposed to everybody sitting around waiting for it to happen. So it really needs to be well facilitated by staff and well facilitated by people who, who do this as opposed to families or sort of feeling like it's drawn out and it's a process that's taking too long. Instead, just utilise that time and make it a magic time for families because that's, that's to me, is what I do see often and that, to me, is just such a beautiful death. Absolutely. And, and I think also, you know, what comes into it is availability of family to be there. I mean, just even talking outside of COVID, when I initially tell people I work in aged care, they often say, oh, you know, you must see death and dying all the time. And that's not the case. In 10 years that I've been in residential aged care facilities, I've seen two deaths and they have been with people where family wasn't around. And I've learned a lot of things through these experiences. And I remember getting some books to help me understand a bit better what was going on. And because I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I never thought that I would actually be in that role, but 
staff can often be busy. They're in and out. They do checks, you know, they see if the person is, you know, they do the OBS and all that and they're in and out, but the person could be dying on their own, even though they're in an aged care facility. So I remember sitting with this lady that was dying and it was her son chose not to be there when she was dying. And, um, and in another case, the spouse of this lady who was dying was also in a facility and he chose it was too much for him. He couldn't sit with her to, right to the end. And I just think about what a privilege it has been to work in this area. And I mean, even for you to share your wisdom and learnings, you know, it's just, it, it really is something quite special. Yeah. One thing that COVID's really highlighted in the media, and I feel for anyone working in aged care at the moment because in the media it's it's looked as very negative and, yeah, there are some things that we need to improve on, but the vast majority of the care in residential aged care is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And I just wanted to say a big thank you to all the people working in aged care that are providing such beautiful care because you don't get thanked often enough. But, but a lot of people do die alone in aged care and one thing we are hearing in the media is how important families are saying that they don't want people to die alone. And that's one of the things that COVID has highlighted, which I think has, you know, there's not a lot of positives to COVID, but that's one thing that's making people stop and reflect on how important that is. Because for me, it's heartbreaking when I see people dying alone. And I'm like you, I'm I'm spending a lot of time with people with um, no one around them. But, you know, I think when you said that that gentleman couldn't, be there with his wife as she was dying because he couldn't handle it, I think it's because he wasn't supported to be there. And if he was supported to be there, I have no doubt he would have wanted to be there. So to me that's really sad, but, you know, that's the reality of what's happening out there. I think it also happened quite quickly that, you know, she died quite quickly and it wasn't drawn out at all like that morning, you know, like she was declining, but... I think the whole process, you know, as you said, sometimes it can be hours, sometimes it can be days. I think it, well, here it was just a couple of hours and she just went downhill very quickly and then she took her last breath and she died. And so I think, you know, in hindsight, sometimes supporting families, you know, like we don't know, like they look at professionals thinking we know how much longer they have to go and we know how much. We really don't know, do we? As a palliative care nurse, can you tell and Look at someone and say, oh, look, they've got this many hours. We, we don't know, do we? Basically, what we do is there's some tools that we can use. The tools that we use is the surprise question. So the surprise question is, would you be surprised if this person was to deteriorate and die in the next 6 to 12 months? In residential aged care, I like to use that surprise question with a shorter time frame to get a better idea. But when I'm looking at people, when I'm assessing them and I'm looking at their full situation, their diagnosis, their, you know, comorbidities, would I be surprised if they were to tear and die in three to six months? We get, as health professionals, the answer to that question right the majority of the time. There's also a SPIC tool that's come out of the University of Edinburgh that's an excellent tool to look at the clinical indicators for the deteriorating patient. That's another excellent tool that I'm encouraging a lot of aged care staff to see. But when you say that someone in aged care died quickly or deteriorated and died quickly, what's likely to have happened is that diagnosis of that deterioration and that assessment of the deteriorating person and that dying process hasn't been assessed in appropriate time frame. So as I said, 
terminal care is only one component of palliative care. We need to start assessing people when they're stable and then we can then preempt a plan around them being unstable and what could crop up and be a problem and address that need. And then when they're deteriorating, make sure the family know that. That deteriorating phase is when they're bed-bound, especially in aged care, not really eating and drinking very much, losing weight. There's other indicators that we know. And then the end stage, the terminal stage, is barely rousable, you know, not really responding to voice, you know, that stage. And then when someone sort of gets a little bit moist in their breathing or they've got gaps in their breathing like apnea, that's when we do know that the time frames, usually hours today. So we do know, we do know, but the problem is that a lot of people in residential aged care aren't able to diagnose the deteriorating patient or diagnose dying because when someone's got cancer, it's pretty obvious when they're doing okay, but when they're deteriorating and dying, it's very steep curve downwards. But when someone's frail aged with dementia or got multi-organ failure, that deterioration is not so obvious and it's a dwindling, it's a slow dwindling. So when they get to that final stage, sometimes we don't pick it and it's really challenging and really difficult and this is what the education that I provide in aged care a lot of the time is focusing on, making sure that family know way back when that this is likely to happen. We don't know exactly when but it will happen and this is what it looks like when it does happen. So no one's surprised. Everyone should be able to plan for a good death and we know that if we have an open honest conversation with families and residents if they're able to be involved and with staff, we, we can do this really well. So, you know, I just feel that this is a real gap and an area that we need to focus on with educating staff around is diagnosing a deteriorating patient and start the process on admission, you know, not saying that everyone's going to die. We know 30% of people in Australia are dying in residential aged care. That's a quite a large component. We know 91% of all admissions to residential aged care result in someone dying, whether it's in three months or three years, you know. It's, but we need to start planning for the process early because we know in life if we're going to do anything well, we need to plan for it. And just because you plan for it early doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. It could happen years down the track, but we don't want to miss the opportunity to plan. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. It's really, yeah, I think from everything I've done in aged care myself, sitting with those two people who were dying, those two ladies, both times I was pregnant at the time and I actually felt like first times I felt my baby move was when these I was holding this client's hand and I just remember it was just such a magic moment and I just think we can do this so much better, we can do this. Not saying that, you know, what is being done is not good but that, you know, as you say, there's this opportunity to really have a lot more good death experiences, yeah. And as you said, it's, it's such a privilege and it's such a privilege to be able to guide families to support their loved ones and, um, and do it well. So when we facilitate a good death, it's beautiful. When I work in a hospital setting and, and somebody's old, frail and obviously dying but having lots of medical interventions and and lots of treatment that is not going to benefit them at all, it breaks my heart and I don't think that's something, you know, and I know that if people have these open, honest conversations and they know, you know, what the deteriorating and the terminal phase looks like for someone, 
then we can avoid those unnecessary transfers to hospital and those unnecessary medical interventions. And by all means, I think if obviously if somebody needs to go to hospital, by all means it's appropriate to go to hospital. If someone needs to go to hospital where the hospital can help them and to improve their situation, and, you know, I think by all means people from aged care need to go to hospital, obviously, but if there's nothing that can be done in the hospital that can't be done in residential aged care and if it's because someone's deteriorating and we just don't know what that looks like and that's why they're being transferred, I think it's so important to avoid that at all costs and, um, you know, enable people to die in a familiar environment with people that know them as opposed to in a busy acute hospital and emergency department where nobody has time to spend with them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I can talk to you for hours about that. And I think it's just, you know, it's about family and their own process as well. And I've seen resuscitate written down on files of clients who who were young, who had neurological conditions and, for example, motor neurone disease and their quality of life obviously would not be great even if they received medical intervention when they're dying. But, okay, on a lighter note, let's have a little chat about our mutual friend Yvonne McMaster. He's done a lot of advocating on palliative care and I feel that, you know, this is something that it's really important and I guess it's important especially to advocate on behalf of those who are in palliative care and who are in residential care. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, Yvonne's amazing. I don't know if she sleeps at night. She's doing so much wonderful work in lifting the profile of palliative care and assisting with government funding to improve palliative care services across New South Wales and I think even nationally now. So I haven't had the pleasure of working with Yvonne McMaster, um, she had retired before I was working for the same organisation. But, you know, just want to say a big thank you to Yvonne for all the work that she does. And technically she's not retired, is she? <laughs> she works probably more than you and I together. <laughs> That's what makes her even more amazing. And she's such a great advocate for palliative care. And, you know, this is the reason why, Julie, I'm, I'm speaking to you today because I'm right there with her and supporting her where I can because, there was the National Palliative Care Conference in Perth at the end of last year when we could have conferences. And and the theme of the conference is palliative care is a human right. And it is. It should be if anyone wants palliative care, they should have access to it. But we know, you know, we're, we're in a, a very well-resourced area, northern Sydney, but we know that the services aren't necessarily as well-resourced in other areas in New South Wales and Australia. So doing an amazing job to to change that. That's fantastic. Really good, Kelly. Now, just as, as a final thought, just to wrap up this, such a powerful, I'm really pleased with all the information you've given. I think it will really help so many listeners. Now, what would be the three top tips that you'd have for those who support clients in, in palliative care? Okay. So educate yourself and become more familiar about advanced care planning. Because without advanced care planning, no one can really die well. So it's all about advanced care planning early when people are well and give them time to go through the process. People need to stop and have a think and have a reflect on what would be what would matter most to them. They need to talk to their families. They need to have conversations. And we need to help people do that because we know that people want to do that, but they just don't know how to do that. And it's our, our job to help facilitate that. 
And then if they need, if they want to write down what their wishes are, do so. And it's part of the advanced care planning process. So anyone working in this area really should be highly skilled in advanced care planning. You know, death literacy is something really important to know about and to improve your death literacy. And, you know, there's a lot of resources available out there. There's resources through Pallyaged and LDAC. If you look up Pallyaged and E-L-D-A-C and anything else, I'll share them with you, Julie, but there are so many fantastic resources out there that are part of the National Palliative Care Projects that a lot of people actually don't know about them. So I like to make sure that people do know about them and have access to that these great tools, resources and education in case they want to know more. But I'll, I'll share them with you to share with this podcast. Wonderful. That's really good. So thank you for that. And I guess, you know, if there's anything more about palliative care, I'll just pop it at the end of the interview and, and people can connect with that because it's probably something that um, gets updated quite regularly and, and it's good to know about those updates and, and changes as they come up. Thank you, Kelly, for your time and for your knowledge on this topic. I think it's really, um, I feel like I've learned so much in the last 45 minutes or so. It's such an important topic and I think it's something that we just can't avoid not talking about. No, and the more people, like the more frank and honest I get when I'm talking like this, the more people appreciate it. So there's a real hunger for knowledge out there in the community and amongst health professionals. So thank you so much, Julie, for doing these podcasts because I think it's so important. Um, We need to get the message out there. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, you know, I deal with the things on the other end after someone dies in terms of workplace grief and loss and what we can do for the workforce to support them because obviously they see quite a lot of death and dying. As you said, 90% of residents die in aged care homes and also for other residents, how we support them. You know, some some facilities don't do it as well as others. You know, they, they shut off everything and you can't know and, oh, you know, don't talk about this resident. And I just think there's, you know, death is part of life and you know as you said like it can be done better yeah yeah so thank you thank you kelly for your time i look forward to chatting with you further at a later date thanks julie well that is another episode of the voice of aged care done and dusted Be sure to become a subscriber on your podcast app of choice so that you don't miss out when I release the next episode. I'd love to know what you're thinking of this podcast and what you'd like to hear in the future. So please leave a rating and review too. Over on my website, wisecare.com.au, with one click, you can grab a copy of my three top downloaded resources on mental health and well-being in older age. Let's face it, this can be a complex topic and I want to give you practical strategies to deal with it. Go to wisecare.com.au for your free copy of these three amazing resources. See you in the next episode.